Welcome to the Assemblage Wine Podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode. Not only will it be a great conversation, but we are also going to be doing a wine tasting towards the end. Um, And anytime I get to taste wine, I know it's going to be a great day. With that being said, today's guest um, is Steve Morgan. Steve is currently the Midwest Regional Manager for the Quarter of the Sorting Table. He began working with wine in 2004 at Osteria Viestato and instantly fell, in, <clears throat> fell for Italian wine. This led to an internship at Foradori Winery in Mezzo-Lombardo, Trentino. In 2008, Steve moved to New York and officially started his career working at Del Posto, The Dressler, I Fiori, and Tribeca Grill. In 2012, he had the opportunity to work a harvest at Lark Mead before moving back to Chicago in 2013. There, he joined the sommelier team at Alinea. In 2015, he started as the opening wine director at Formentos and won a Best of Award of Excellence from Wine Spectator. With all that being said, Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I'm so happy to uh, finally sit down and chat with you. So it's it's nice to be doing this, um, although virtually it's nice to be tasting with you again. No, it's great to taste with you. I was really excited the first time I got to taste with you. You know, too bad the world didn't let it happen again <laughs> until now. I know. I know. Well, hopefully soon. And yep. uh, I'm I'm in the midst of expanding the wine list. So maybe, um, you know, you can come down again and we can taste some cool wines. Sweet. I'd love so that. Let's, uh, let's just kind of talk about your journey with wine. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in wine and then more just about your time working in New York City and Chicago. For sure. Yeah, uh, I'm, I always like to talk about my journey starting at my parents' dinner table. Uh, my parents are both classical musicians and we're working as, you know, my brother and I were growing up. So no matter if it meant that it was like 15 minutes, five minutes or an hour and a half, we had dinner together. Um, it was always a really big focus uh, and something that I really revered. So I, all, I kind of came into wine from the dinner table, uh, literally. And my brother uh, started working in restaurants and he's a little bit older than me. And he you know, understood what all sort of servers understand over a certain period of time, that uh, how much money you make is based on how much good wine you sell. And if you're in a restaurant that has a really good wine list and a really big wine list and a really expensive wine list, you can make even more money. So he he worked in Chicago, actually in Evanston, where I'm from, and then moved out to New York, was working at Babo. Um, and so suddenly from him starting to work in restaurants, wine became a bigger part of our dinner table conversation. And going out to eat uh, was sort of, becoming more and more important and uh and the quality of where we were going to eat and the quality of wine we were drinking became more and more sophisticated so there was this uh for me this initial spark that happened because it was part of this familial experience and um and bit by bit uh you know that expanded to me in college studying abroad and going 
to Italy with my family for the first time and or meeting my parents in Italy and going around and really, you know, being in Montalcino and having spectacular food and wine, you know, paired beautifully, finding bottles of wine that were six euros and having gnocchetti with black truffles and Umbria that like went perfectly together and this sort of like blending of how food and wine could make that familial dining experience that much better really drove me into, into the arms of the restaurant industry. Um, uh, then, you know, from those experiences, I was fortunate enough to have my first real fine dining restaurant job or casual fine dining. It was Osteria di Estado where I got to work with Belinda Chang. Um, and Belinda is one of the most amazing educators on wine I've ever, I've ever worked with, uh, really finding ways to make education super fun, uh, at the, at this time, you know, with Osteria Viestato making a wine list that was super dynamic and all Italian and literally like nothing else Chicago had seen. It was Spiaggia's quantity in terms of amount of wine, but all the price points were a lot more, uh, a lot more attractive and accessible. And also, you know, in this case, really easy to, dig your teeth into while also being like geeky and then you you know and and so using books like vino italiano by you know david lynch and joe bassianich i would learn about what regions were connected to to what wines and what foods came from those regions and how they all went together and that for me was like just just something i totally fell in love with and so i learned first and foremost through italian wine um, and that experience at Osteria Viestato and learning more uh, allowed me to get my first sort of wine buyer gig at a little wine bar called Enoteca Roma in, uh, I guess, Ukrainian village-ish uh, Chicago, West Division. And that set me up uh, without really any knowledge of where I was going to get an internship with Elizabeth Foridori at Foridori Winery. Um, and... I had tried the wines. I kind of knew what Teraldigo was. I kind of knew a little bit about it. Um, but I had no idea that I was kind of, I was walking into, I would say an internship that anyone in, who loves wine is interested in farming would, would you know, fight tooth and nail to get. Um, you know, w being at a winery that was, you know, run by Elisabetta and her mother that was converting the biodynamics that uh, had such a deep sense of place and such a profound care for every part of the process um, really sort of instilled in me my like base of uh, what, what I thought wine should be. And I think from that point on, obviously, um, you know, everything kind of was colored by that experience. So, uh, yeah, and um, came back, worked a little bit in uh, Chicago again and, and moved uh, in hopes of getting a job at Marvel Comics, I moved to New York. <laughs> um, so fortunately I did get an internship in Marvel Comics, but uh, I also got a job as a sommelier at Del Posto. So that was really taking what I thought was like a uh, a bit of a lot of Italian wine knowledge at the time in Chicago um, and walking into, you know, a Bible of, of some of the 
of every great Italian wine ever produced. <laughs> uh, you know, going day by day, being totally out of my depth and learning, you know, picking a producer, a region in Piedmont and in each day kind of like reading more about the producer, reading more about that region, reading about vintages and trying each day to sell, um, you know, to sell what, uh, whatever I could from that producer and from that area to the guests so that I could really have all that knowledge get cemented in my brain. And I did that, you know, pretty much every day for a year and a half and learned so much about Italian wine and also learned that, you know, how to work with a massive inventory and, and work with, uh, sell from an inventory to, you know, keep, you know, listen to the guests, decide what the, you know, pick from what you have and not what's super limited. Try to keep, you know, expanding a list. All of these ideas that... Kind of transitioning, I um, you're now the Midwest Regional Manager for the Sorting Table. Um, what are some of your favorite aspects of that job? It's, for me, one of the things that I realized in restaurants and, and now... Um, on the supplier side is that uh, is that it's really a people job. So people being a creating relationships with uh, restaurateurs and wine buyers um, and, you know, starting to, to know about not just like what wine they like, but like what makes them tick as people and makes them excited and why that personality goes, makes that restaurant successful and like the cool things that they're doing and what they're passionate about are really, really important to me. And then, um, you know, that like, as I as sort of alluded to earlier, you know, I, I, you know, moved to New York because I wanted to work in, you know, at Marvel Comics and I've had this history in creative writing and it's, uh, I'm really into A, the people who we work with because fortunately most of them are really great. And most of them have really amazing stories. And I really like the idea of building, um, building that story for them with, with buyers um, and with, you know, clientele in general. And if I get the, if, and when they're there, letting them share their story and being a part of, of the experience of watching, you know, people kind of watching their lights turn on over wine. I mean, you were fortunate. I know you talked to Christiana Tiberio and she's just, you could sit, you could listen to her speak for like six, eight hours and not be, mm -hmm. not be bored of it. And she could talk about, you know, and she speaks about m so much more than just wine. Um, and so being able to re represent those people and then start to not only represent like the art that they're doing that I think is amazing, but also then represent the people themselves who become, you know, become friends. And that that's really, you know, that's really the coolest part of it. I think uh, there was, um, it was a book that my wife <laughs> told me I should write at one point that was called uh, Great Wine, Better People. And that's really mm -hmm. like, that's, that's what, what gets me going. That got me going as a sommelier. Um, and it definitely is the stuff that makes me super excited to work with the sorting table. Yeah. And she and Christiana, she is just such a great person. Um, yeah. You know, like you said, like, I think the interview or the podcast is maybe like 30 or 40 minutes, but 
I felt like I could just sit there and like, you know, recording or not, just sit there and like hear her speak and, and talk to her for like hours and hours and hours. Cause she just, she has so much passion and so much to say about what she does. Um, and you know, everything she does with the mass cell selections and native clones and all that kind of stuff is just so inspiring to me. And, you know, she, she talked about how, you know, it's either her or her brother, I believe that does all the pruning, um, on a certain aspect or of a, a certain part of the vineyard where the vines are like, 80 to 100 years old, um, which is just crazy because, um, you know, it kind of that hit home with me and, you know, how much stuff, you know, I we do and, and that she still wants to be super hands on, even though, you know, I'm sure she's got a million other things she has to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I need to I need to catch up with her again because she was she's just such an awesome person. Yeah, she's I mean, you know, like uh, to gush over her for a few more seconds um you know she she's one of those uh not that I want to set up the expectation we could probably edit this out is that like I had a good friend who went uh he and his now wife went to Abruzzo for a friend's wedding and they had liked Christiana's wines and they were like we could make it you know out there if if it made any sense and so I connected them to Christiana and she was like oh fantastic I'll, I'll I'd love to show them the winery so they went and they got this tour and they were just head over heels in love with the winery and they were ready to go you know drive back and they're like okay and she's like no now time for lunch she's like I'm really sorry the Michelin star restaurant that is closed today but I'm going to take you to the seaside restaurant where we can you know have Cherisuolo and and Cachuco or whatever I can't remember the the name of the Abruzzo's version of Cachuco, but like she just has this like uh, ability where she it's not it's not just as amazing as her wines are she like just sees herself as part of like promoting not just Abruzzo wine but Abruzzo the region Abruzzo the restaurants and then and and within all of that um, also the ability to like just just want to to spend that extra time with anyone to really get them to appreciate it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, she's, she's awesome. And, you know, I, I carry a couple of her wines here and every opportunity I have to talk about her and her wines, I, um, I'm sure some of my customers are like, can you just pour the wine in my glass? <laughs> like, we don't want to hear about all this, but I'm like, you know, I, like I you I need have... to understand. No, you, you, you can't have this wine until you understand where it comes from and who makes it. <laughs> um, but I know, like, obviously, you know, we both have a, a, a love and passion for Italian wine and, and all types of wine, but specifically Italian wine, especially with your background and my background, um, at Scarpe with, you know, all Italian wines. So what if we pour ourselves some wine and kind of just talk about, you know, like maybe some of your favorite Italian grape varietals or regions that you're really excited about. Um, plus I'm getting kind of thirsty. So, um, <laughs> I think, I think it's time to, to drink some wine. What about you? I'm into it. I'm into it. Let's do it. Perfect. So just while we're kind of pouring, um, 
tell me about just some of your favorite Italian wine regions or your favorite grapes or, you know, favorite, favorite place you've traveled to. Well, to, I don't know where it comes from, but to, as the saying goes, to beat a dead horse, uh, if you haven't been to Abruzzo, Abruzzo is, to me, what Tuscany has to offer, but with a lot more space um, and a lot more quiet. And you've got, like, you know, the mountains where you can ski and you're right on the Adriatic. It's really, really picturesque. I, have, uh, I haven't been to Sicily. That is, that's very high on my list. But um, for me... I don't know if there is a region in Italy that doesn't make a wine that I'm not, that I'm like, couldn't find some level of excitement in, you know, whether it be uh, to the point like, you know, having Grichetto or Montevalco Rosso with Umbrian, you know, Neocchetti and truffles or like having a Sangiovese while you're having, you know, Chianina, you know, steak or, you know, or white truffles and, and Barbaresco and Brollo. I, I can't, I, you know, I can't pick favorites. Uh, but I will say that one of the things that I've grown to really, really enjoy, um, maybe because I'm always looking for, you know, something, something a little different or something that doesn't get the same amount of press as it should is that I've really, really fallen hard for, uh, Italian whites, um, you know, things like Trebbiano and Pecorino and Vermentino and uh, Verdicchio and Petit Arvine and, you know, the list, Caricante, the list goes really on and on, Greco, Fiano, like I, these are all the, these wines that I think are, um, they're so idiosyncratic and so, um, they're so different region to region uh and they've all been sort of lumped together which is really really unfortunate but for me both um fresh and also with age these are some of the most uh exciting white wines out there and also great values at the same time yeah i find that you know italian white wines have like you said great value super well but they're also great you know super fresh um and you know the the ability for me as a sommelier they pair with so many different foods um you know every region has such a different um terroir and oh no i just think that it's it's a really you know i think well this is something whether we talk about it later it'll be really interesting i think that we're some of those wines that we see for so inexpensive and that have historically been so inexpensive are going to start being more, you know, the work that's going in, the the livelihood that these producers are putting into it, I think we're going to start seeing some of those prices raised so people can, you know, live a higher quality of life for the, pro, you know, if a wine costs 30 euros there and someone's charging $150 here, like, that that 30 euros is a lot less than 150 and who where yeah. how does that take care of the producer right i was actually looking into um or for our wine club for scarpe i was looking into something and um the producer that i'm featuring in may they actually have a whole line of wines that a part of the proceeds actually goes back to the uh vineyard crews which is pretty awesome um and i think 
really cool if more people started doing that to kind of, you know, take care of the, the people who are growing the grapes and making the wine because without them, you know, none of it's possible. Yeah, sustainability is a bigger idea than just how people farm and how, but like really creating, you know, sustainability for employees is I think something we're starting to see more of in, in California and a couple other places where having full-time crews, having, you know, offer, making, making the farming part of it not be like day labor, but like a real job and taking care of people, right. which is really, I think it's exciting to see. Yeah. Soil composition. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's so many just different grape varietals out there and, you know, each region, even if it may be the same grape varietal, they've got a different name for it and they treat it differently. So it's like they're two different completely lines. Um, you know, that's what I love. And, you know, just kind of jumping into the first wine, which is the, the uh, Canteen Colossi Grio. Um, like I, I tasted this wine probably, I don't know, two years ago or a year and a half ago and immediately fell in love with it for its freshness and bright acidity and kind of, um, it almost has the nose of, I hate to compare it to Sauvignon Blanc, but it has like this tropical note that reminds me of like a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, maybe not quite as intense as those wines can be, but it has like this pineapple, um, almost like passion fruit nose for it, in my opinion. Uh, I 100% just, agree. Uh, it's got all and, uh, the Sauvignon Blanc call is perfect. And when, you know, because Sauvignon Blanc is not something that really grows a whole lot or maybe I shouldn't say that, but we don't carry, or a lot of my um, wine reps and stuff don't carry Italian Sauvignon Blanc. There's maybe one or two producers out there, but the couple ones I've tasted, I haven't really loved. Um, so when people come into the restaurant and call for a Sauvignon Blanc, and if they want something that's more in the line of Australia or New Zealand, um, this is what I pull. If someone's looking for more like a French Sancerre, um, I'll usually go with a Suave. Um, but you know, this wine is, is great. It's fresh and it pairs beautifully with seafood. Um, and to me is like the perfect wine to just sit outside and drink and hang out and maybe have some like, you know, uh, shrimp cocktail or, or, you know, grilled octopus or something with it. Yeah. It's super piney and flinty going with those tropical mm -hmm. notes. So like, yeah, those are for me, things that remind me of Sauvignon and I had never, uh, we we work with a small producer named Vino Loria that makes a Grillo, and their Grillo is a lot more like Gruner. It's a little bit mm -hmm. more weighty in style. But um, Colosi, I, 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 when we traded wines, I told you like Colosi Rosso was like one of the first wines that was by the glass at Osteria Viestato. It was like learning what Nero Davolo was was mind blowing when I started in wine. Um, but Grillo. Um, has always been just that that level of uh, it, it has all the you know we talk about those descriptors it's got like smoky earthy descriptors floral descriptors fruit descriptors 
it's a little bitter at the finish. It's got great acidity and it still has weight. And like that all comes in at a wine that, you know, it's like $10 a glass at your restaurant, which is nuts mm -hmm. when you can say all of those descriptors are in uh, an entry, you know, a quote unquote, like the, you know, uh, inexpensive glass of wine. So that um, that's really delicious. And thanks. Thanks for giving me a, another shot to try their wines. It had been way too long. Yeah, and no, I kind of, I also call it, um, so the way I talk about wine in the restaurant is probably like if the court saw me in action, they'd probably, uh, like I'd probably be shunned and like put in a, a corner or something. But I, I call Grillo, or Grillo kind of a, a gateway drug wine. Um, typically when I have people coming in for, Pinot Grigio or, um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc or something along those lines. I mean, obviously those are two different, but, um, you know, both very fresh and acidic and, and nice crisp wines. I'll usually pour them, you know, a little bit of Pinot Grigio and I'll pour them a little bit of Grillo and just sh show them side by side. And almost every time they don't choose the Pinot Grigio. Um, and then from there, they, you know, I noticed that it, their curiosity starts to kind of, uh, you know, really get involved and be like, well, this is great. What else do you have? And then it becomes, you know, before you know it, they're drinking Verdicchio and they're drinking Caraconte, drinking all these fantastic wines that they never had even heard of, let alone, you know, tried. Um, and it's kind of a cool thing use this as kind of that gateway wine um, into Italy. I love the gateway drug description. It is definitely <laughs> one that I've used uh, for myself because I think there's, you know, I think that wine, all wines are very difficult. And depending on how you were trained, it sounds, you know, from talking to you, I know we both learned from Italy outwards, but most people learn from like California and France. So they know the grapes kind of, they have like a kind of sort of understanding of what the grapes are, like not the minutia of like how different it is in each you know village in Burgundy, but like they, they get a, a base sense of it. And then you say, this is Grillo. And, uh, you know, they're like, what, what's so, it That's like? not Chardonnay. They're, yeah. That's not Pinot Grigio. Is that a type of Pinot Grigio? Is that a, you know, they're like, <laughs> So there, there. You have to, you have to meet people um, where where they are, and that I think that's like the biggest part of of being uh, a sommelier or someone talking about wine on the floor is just like, yeah, like, let me show you, oh, give you a little taste of something I'm excited about, and let me like place this wine for you. Like, hey, you're gonna order like, you know. For me, if it's ever on a menu, wherever it is, like if someone does a good fried calamari or grilled calamari, I'm on it. So I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. you're sitting by a seaside. You're going to have this. This wine is like, you're, you're, you know, you're, this is an island wine. You are surrounded by water as you're drinking this wine. If you look way off in the distance, there's a volcano. There's blah, blah, blah. You know, you like, you can set people where they are and give them expectations of why these things go together. Um, because every time you you show someone an Italian white wine, uh, you're not going to be incorrect to assume that like they've never had it before, <laughs> or right. they've never yeah, even I, heard of the grape before. 
And it's kind of cool um, because when I first opened, you know, I basically only sold Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, Chianti, um, and like a Cabernet blend that I sell. Um, and, you know, I've gotten to the point where I hardly move any Pinot Grigio. And I, I you know, the, the wines we sell are, are fantastic and, you know, to me, the best examples but we don't sell any Chianti anymore. We don't sell any Pinot Grigio. It's all like Grillo or Grillo. And, um, uh, you know, I sell a lot of Montepulciano di Abruzzo, which is pretty cool. Um, so just showing people that there's more and getting people out of their comfort zone while still showing them approachable wines is kind of something that's been my bread and butter. Um, because I found people are willing to try things more, you know, as long as you give them a story and give them like a little bit of background, their kind of curiosity peaks and they kind of open up and, you know, they don't just demand Napa Valley Cabernet or Pinot Grigio or whatever it is. Well, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, you know, I like to, in my mind, the way I would always describe it is that like you as the person selling, you know, people have agreed to come to the restaurant to sit and eat the food. Um, so they know they're going to spend money on food and this, but the wine is something a, most of them are uncomfortable with to begin with and B is this extra expense. So how you can set them at ease, or as I say, like give them a sense of ownership over that decision and make them comfortable in making that decision and not like feel like, oh, I have a story, I have something that's exciting, I'm into that, I now know what I'm drinking, I can, might be able to take some of that away with me. Like that, that gives them power in that relationship um, where I think so many people feel feel powerless. So I think that's that's super cool. Also, we gotta get you back on Chianti. Chianti is well, no, like so the greatest in the world. It, it it's is. It's just like it most is. of it, there's a lot of trash, but like, I can't, you can't say enough good things about Chianti. And me too. Like I, I just pick on it because it is, you know, it's what people for a long time called call for. And I actually just added three Chianti's to my menu. So as I'm talking about, <laughs> I don't sell any Chianti. Chianti is, you know, like I sell all this other stuff, you know, last week I literally got uh, Chianti Rufina, uh, kind of a base level Chianti and then a Chianti Gran Selezione. Um, so, you know, like, as I'm here bashing it, I'm, <laughs> now I got to start Good. pushing Chianti again. So don't, don't take it as I hate Chianti. It's just more <laughs> of, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot more to Italian wine than Chianti. Um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of really awesome Chianti out there. It's great to have Chianti on a bottle list and use the, by the glass list to, 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 challenge people and also find value so i get it yeah Just, I, I i fight i fight the chianti fight very hard but per work and personally i'm uh, i'm a very big fan yeah well me too so let's jump into uh the one that you brought cool uh so this is a producer named vinia marina copi a uh, relatively new producer i mean they've been around for less than 15 years uh they're in an area called the Coli Tortonese, which is in Piedmont, but it's closer to like Genoa than it is to the Longue. Uh, okay. So in that case, it's really important to think of it more as like a Mediterranean instead of a con continental climate. 
but particularly where they are, it is actually similar soil types to the longue. So um, the, this producer is, um, his name is Francesco Bellocchio. He makes the wine with his wife and his two daughters. Uh, this is named Marine after his uh, grandmother, but also Marine is the name of his daughter that was born during their first harvest. Um, it's 100% Favorito, which is the local name for Vermentino. Um, this wine, uh, it's, it, it's, it, they also make Timorasso. These are really, um, Timorasso is sometimes referred to as the white Barolo because it has natural tannin to it uh, and makes it super ageable and needs a lot of time to open up. Uh, this Vermentino doesn't have that, but this, this example of Favorito or Vermentino is one of the more more serious and exciting um, uh, white wines that I I love because it's something that you know could be a you know fifty dollar bottle of wine on a wine list and again like totally over deliver when someone's mm -hmm. just looking for would be thinking they're getting a simple fresh white wine this is two thousand sixteen and it's still super fresh and dynamic but like the mouthfeel is just like overwhelming uh just so much going on mm -hmm. so in this case uh it is you know there's no oak on this wine there's a couple months of batonage uh and they generally pick this wine a little overripe um for for fruit and structure um but in this case uh it can do that because the acidity is ripping. So, um, yeah. What do you think of it? It's fantastic. It like I love the body of it. Um, you know the everything you explained is there. Like, but the the body to me is is something that's really exciting, um, and it's something that when I'm selling wine, a lot of the times people who order white wine typically want something that's super crisp, super light, super refreshing. Um, and it's not that this isn't that it just has another level of complexity to it. And another, you know, it's a little bit bigger of a white wine, um, in the sense that it could pair with a lot of different things. Um, and, and yeah, I love what, it. Um, what are, what are the things you, are there any things on the menu that you're, you know, currently doing that you think would be a good pairing for this wine? Um, so man, that is good. Um, I think it would be, I, it would be great with, um, chef's, uh, sea scallops that she's doing right now. Um, it's served with a cauliflower puree and herb oil. Um, and you know, there's a little bit of butter in there, which I think could pair really nicely with the texture of this wine. Um, and then we're also doing an Amish chicken dish right now that I think would be, uh, really fantastic with different textures of that dish and chicken being kind of a lighter uh, protein, you know, I think that it would be, it, it would be great with either of those. Yeah. The scallop dish sounds like a knockout. I think um, like what's really cool about all of Francesco's wines is they have like this um, or white wine specifically is like, I like white wine that you can bite into, you know, mm -hmm. like it's got, it's got that the complexity and the intensity of a red wine 
without it being overly oaked or overly alcoholic or flabby. Like this is chiseled. Um, it's got a little bit of waxiness that makes me think of Chenin Blanc. And I love like Chenin Blanc and cauliflower is like a thing that mm -hmm. I adore. Um, I think there's an, uh, an awesome herbaceous quality to it as well. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I've loved to do, it's a Odalangi recipe, but I've done it and drunk this wine with it is like, he does a slow roasted, uh, whole cauliflower, um, which you slow roast with like butter and oil. And like, then you finish it with a little bit of like, uh, toasted parsley, but then you make a green tahini sauce that has like, Oh, nice. A bunch of different sort of herbs in it with tahini and you put that with it. And it's kind of like, it's got the body, it's got the crunch, it's got the fresh, it's got this waxy long character, it's got good acidity. Um, like, as you know, that's, that's a the food I like to eat, but also kind of the thing that I think that all of those, those notes are in the wine. And then to the point, and I, I like that you brought it up is like, this is a talking about texture and white wine is like one of my probably one of my weaknesses <laughs> um, in terms of description because I just love saying like how textured a wine is and like all the different levels creating texture but this is one of those wines that makes me love Italian whites because I'm like mm -hmm. oh my god there's just so much going on like you could if I was at a table I would talk about it for 30 minutes and they'd be like stop talking I just want to drink the wine um, <laughs> but it's just got that level of depth which is really really cool yeah, it's uh, it's great. And honestly, if I can um, find it, I'm definitely going to try and bring this in. I know that probably wasn't uh, maybe it was part of your plan, but um, it's just it's got so much going on, um, but it's still approachable and it's not way far removed from what people would like about white wine, if that makes any sense. No, like for it's, sure. it's I mean... different. And it's it's different enough to be something different but it's not so out there that people would be like what am i you know like this is too strange for me um which i think is kind of that perfect middle ground and getting people to expand their horizons on on what they like to drink i'll call jay right now no i'm just kidding um <laughs> no i already texted yeah. him so <laughs> oh sweet deal uh no i mean i think this is like you know it's it's really cool they're I, you know, I was talking about it with uh, a woman named Melissa Sutherland, who's been working on a book on Italian white wine for a really long time and has sort of been an advocate. But, um, you know, I think these are both examples, you know, at still at, at, at like good price points of, of wines that just like over deliver on complexity and show how totally different um Italian white wine can be and and that makes me super excited when I get to taste these two things and say like oh man like there there is a commonality to the wine I can definitely see it but if someone like tried to put all Italian whites all together like they all taste like Pinot Grigio I would happily show them these two and be like no <laughs> yeah you're wrong yeah, and that's that's something that I've been, you know, kind of advocating for and, you know, just trying to show people different things because wine is I, I 
it drives me nuts when people put that blanket statement of, like you just said, all Italian whites are the same when there's not very many Italian whites that are even close to each other. There's so much diversity and so much out there that put them all together. Um, you know, just even like you said, in these two examples, it's two completely different styles from two very different regions. And that's kind of the, the most exciting thing for me. And, and it's something that I'm working on, you know, building my list, you know, in the next couple months, I want to be adding about 30 to 40 wines. And a lot of those are probably going to be white wines, um, just to show how each region has such different grapes that produce such different wines. Um, and just, I'm hoping that people can, can appreciate that and, uh, you know, start drinking more, more white wine. We should do an, a, a wine dinner. That's all Italian whites. We should, that would be awesome. Like, that would be do great. Something super. And the other thing is to add is like Italian white wine, like outside of a really small amount of, of producers and wines, isn't that expensive. No, like if you if you go and get a great Italian white wine, you can find things for twenty or twenty five dollars on under retail really easily. But mm -hmm. like, you know, you want to drink a Burgundy at that price, even something from the Loire, Sancerre, all these things. Like it's it's next to impossible. Um, yeah. So, I'm, yeah, I'm, most of the Italian most of the Italian whites that I have on uh, my list are you know anywhere from like. 32 I think to just say 60 um and then there's like one guy uh, uh Chardonnay one it's 120 dollars on my list so it's kind of funny that's because a, that's a good is, price for the Roche Voss that's a good deal it it is yeah and you know I'm like people are like oh that's really expensive and I'm like honestly as far as margin goes that's your best value um, but you know, when people think spending $120 on a bottle of white wine, it's not, you know, on their, on their, uh, their to-do list, I guess. But yeah, it's kind of funny. Cause they're like, what's going on with this one? I'm like, well, Gaia is one of my favorite producers of wine ever. Um, and quite frankly, their wines are just, they cost more. Um, so, you know, I have to cost them out to be more expensive. This is the cheapest wine they make. Enjoy. Yeah, I know. Uh, I was like, or or we have the Gaia Brunello, which is, you know, 170 or the Gaia Spurs, which is over $300. So, you know, as compared to those other ones, like, it's actually pretty inexpensive. <laughs> they don't like to hear relative. that, though. It's all relative. <laughs> uh, it is. If you would really like your California Chardonnay, this is the wine you should order. Um, yeah. You know, but no, that's, I mean... It's really, you know, to, to sort of say like what, what I've seen from what you're doing, um, you know, what George is doing at, at Maine and Lincoln, like, mm -hmm. it's really, it's really cool to see how, how uh, dynamic uh, Valparaiso's dining scene's becoming, which is, you know, not something I, you know, part of the joy of being on my side of things is, you know, getting a call to go to a city that you've never been to before and being like, who's this dude who's doing all this cool stuff with Italian wine? Like <laughs> what's going yeah. on here? It's really fun. Yeah. It, it's cool to kind of, you know, get people to see how different things can be and, you know, really just try and 
share our our knowledge and our passion with people and you know get people excited about it that's awesome i can't wait uh well hopefully if if not for an uh, italian white wine uh you know wine dinner coming out to see you guys soon i'm looking forward to it yeah that'd be great and uh you know just before we go is there anything that you would like to plug or anything that you would like to talk about before we uh before we're done I don't know if it's been discussed on your podcast before, but it's been a pretty crazy two years in the wine and restaurant world uh, between a pandemic tariffs and now, and now shipping craziness. Uh, You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really wild world out there for all of us trying to figure out what a new normal is. Um, So, you know, it's, uh, it's really nice to see, you know, all of all of the people around me, including you, Adam, who are like, who are trying new, uh, new things, um, and trying to diversify themselves and offer differing opportunities for uh, the, the people of their, you know, who are their clients or the people who could be their clients. So um, it's been a crazy year, but it's it's something it's, it's really exciting to see you know, all the different projects people are doing. And I hope all of this continues when, you know, we return to some sense of normality. But uh, until then, you know, support the little guys who are who are supporting the farmers. Um, you know, look at the back label of the wines you're buying. Have a conversation with a, with a, a salesperson or a sommelier and learn something new. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better than that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just wanted to thank you again for taking an hour out of your day. I know you're, you're a busy guy. So, um, you know, I appreciate you sitting down and, uh, tasting some wine and I hope next time we taste, uh, we get to do it in person. Yeah. You let me know. I'll come on up or east Sounds or good. whatever, whatever direction it is. I'll, I'll, yeah. I look forward to, I look forward to pulling some bottles and I like the idea of, of us, you know, of opening, of drinking things that aren't just sorting table and aren't just mine, just to compare and have that understanding. So let's, uh, let's make sure that we can have some food and pop some fun things. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, Steve, thank you. And, uh, I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks so much, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Assemblage Wine Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it, and we're busy creating brand new content, including podcasts, blogs, and other uh, really awesome things for you guys to enjoy. If you or if you know of someone that would be great for the podcast, uh, please have them contact us uh, via social media or via email. Um, and you know, we, we hope that we can continue to create really fantastic podcasts for you all. So cheers and have a great day.